The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So it's um, nice to be with you again and uh, sit together on a rainy morning. It's always very nice. Um, I thought to say a few words about the idea of wholeness in practice and uh, this kind of one vision of Dharma practice as a path to wholeness. Um, I think it was Carl Jung who said uh, something like, I'd rather be whole than be good. I'd rather be whole than be good. And um, that made a big impact on me when I first heard that. And I was a student in uh, university and taking a class on, on Jungian psychology. And something about wholeness as a a goal, as a worthy goal for a human life that to me had a kind of authenticity to it. And maybe maybe something about it implying that um, no aspect of ourselves is uh, to be um, deleted. You know, it's like um, that there's that there's value in getting to know and understand and bring mindfulness to all the parts of who we are. And um, this is a poem by a uh, Japanese by Izumi Shikibu. Watching the moon at dawn, solitary, mid-sky, I knew myself completely, no part left out. Watching the moon at dawn, solitary, mid-sky, I knew myself completely, no part left out. And so this idea of, of wholeness, of no part left out, is, at least in this poem, um, a way of speaking about enlightenment, a way of speaking about uh, the goal of practice. You know, sometimes the goal of kind of enlightenment is, is symbolized by the full moon. And one of the beautiful aspects of this symbol is that, I mean, there's many different ways of, of understanding that imagery. But one way is that even though sometimes the moon appears as partial in the sky, um, actually it's always full, right? You know, it's just, it's just the, our perspective, wh- the way we see it sometimes is it's, it's part of it is hidden, part of it is not accessible to us. Um, the other beautiful um, way that the moon imagery works is that um, it's said that the moonlight shines on everything, even a 
drop of water reflects the entire moon, the entire moonlight. If you think, you know, the smallest uh, puddle, the smallest drop of water, even though it's just a drop, the, the entire moon is reflected in that drop. And so the idea that um, there's a wholeness in us that is always there, you know, that we, that we um, usually don't appreciate. And then, and then I think about what would it be like to see ourselves as whole? Um, sometimes people talk about encounters with a person who is a deeply spiritual person or a deeply realized person, deeply mature, deeply authentic person. And one of the experiences that we may have when we're in the presence of someone like that is to feel like they see us as whole. They see, they, maybe they see something that we don't necessarily see. Um, people sometimes would talk about Suzuki Roshi that way, who was the founder of the San Francisco Zen Center. And in a way, part of our lineage here at IMC, because Gil, um, the founding teacher of IMC here, um, was a student for many years at San Francisco Zen Center. And so, and so people would describe that this feeling of almost like a feeling of grace or a feeling of complete acceptance that when someone can see us with, with clear eyes, can see our, our, our good sides and our potential, and maybe they can also see our limitations or the places where we can grow and the places where we uh, have difficulties and someone who can see all of that and meet that with a love and acceptance that um, maybe is sometimes hard for us to give to ourselves. So, um, so this idea of wholeness. Um, the, the other person who comes to mind in just thinking about this, offering this gift of uh, wholeness is uh, Fred Rogers, who is the, um, you know, Mr. Rogers. Uh, the, the television star who um, actually was, um, I know this because I, I am reading a book about him and it's called Peaceful Neighbor and it's, and it's a biography of him and that he was a very deep person and actually he was um, a, an ordained minister some kind of Protestant minister, it might have Presbyterian. Thank you. And um, but his ministry was his television work, and his ministry was his um, message to children that I like you just the way you are. You know, if you could kind of sum up his message in one, you know, that I like you just the way you are, and in watching some of the old episodes right now because I have young children. And not only is he speaking to the children, which he is, but he's speaking to their parents. And he's modeling and he's teaching the parents how to speak to the children. 
And so it's so deep and so beautiful. And the other thing that strikes me is that in his television work, he did not bring in his theological um, uh, beliefs, you know. And the idea was that um, to talk about Christianity would be, would maybe be a little bit exclusionary, you know, or maybe would kind of limit his message in a way. So it came from this deep religious faith and this deep practice, but it was universalized, the love, the um, care, the, the attention, the dignity that he sort of brought to each. I mean, if you, it's really like a meditation to watch him. You know, he comes into this room, his house, and then every single time he does the same thing. He, takes off, he sits down, he takes off one shoe, he puts it down, he takes off the other shoe, he puts it down, he puts on his slippers, he unzips his sweater. You know, so part of it is for, you know, children, I think, love and crave and need um, consistency, that kind of consistency and that ritual. And so he was, he was imbuing this ordinary activities with this sacred, sense of the sacred, the sense of ritual, um, which if you can imagine, if a child is um, in a home where maybe the parents are stressed, maybe there's, there's some kind of um, uncertainty, um, in, in the family life or in a home life, that television experience was a kind of comfort and a kind of, you know, that I remember that being a kid and watching that and just loving, loving that you know what to expect. And he even has a song which is something like, um, oh, let's go, it's, a, it's something like, it's, the basic idea is I like to know what's going to happen. You know, and children like to know what's going to happen. We're going to go there, we're going to do this, and then we're going to do that, and then we're going to come home. And for some children, especially children who are anxious, and say, that's, they can go relax. Okay, now I know what's going to happen. Um, so I don't know if there's any parallel to this place. You know, you kind of know what's going to, you know, come to come in, this, that, you know, ring the bell. <laughs> You know what's going to happen. Um, and the, the other just, just interesting thing about Fred Rogers is that he was, um, for his time, very, I mean, there's, there's so many different stories and so many different things, but, and people often, ha- you can look up on the web, but people often have these stories of their encounters with him. You know, be, having been children who grew up with, Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, or maybe parents who, who watched. Um, sometimes we hear about encounters with a star who, that are a little bit disappointing, you know, because they have a certain image. Um, I, won't, I won't name any uh, who, <laughs> because that's, you know, who knows, but, right? And who knows, someone's having a bad day or something. That it's hard to be a person who's watched and who's, you know, kind of, everyone wants something from you. But 
the, the, what's striking is the stories about Mr. Rogers is that um, m- he, beyond what their expectations are or beyond what their memory is of, of the message and the experience of watching his show, to meet him in person was kind of like this spiritual encounter where he would stop what he was doing and just bring all his attention to the child or to the grown-up or whoever and, and just say, you know, with this like, oh, were you one, are you one of our neighbors? You know, and, and talk to the person and, and, and what a healing experience it has been for some people, at least who, who have had this encounter with him in person. There was one story in the book of him um, taking the subway on the way to a meeting in New York City, even though he was from Pittsburgh. And he, but he would go to New York City for meetings with PBS and other things. And um, those of you who know New York know that kids often go to school on the subway, come back to school. So he was in the subway car, and all of a sudden, the whole subway car broke out into song. It said, would you be my, you know, neighbor. And <laughs> you know, the kind of city kids, you kind of think, cynical, um, sophisticated, tough. Um, so there's something, there's a power in to see, to see us, to see someone as, to be seen as, as whole, as complete. Um, it doesn't mean that we don't have problems. It doesn't mean that we don't have things to work on, but that someone can appreciate our essence, can see beyond the, um, all these ideas that we may have about ourselves. And, um, and then the idea that of Dharma practice as a channel to this as mindfulness practice, meditation practice, as a path to wholeness um, in its most simple way. Th- I, I think maybe the most direct path to this is that willingness to sit and meditate and be mindful and open to whatever is happening. You know, so sometimes we talk about this as um, being willing to experience an unedited version of ourselves. You know, so, so usually we um, consciously or unconsciously, we're editing. We're always editing our experience. And, you know, and that's a, that's a useful thing, especially, you know, in certain circumstances, this is important to, to say this or not say this or, or be like this or not be like this. So we quickly learned that in order to navigate life, navigate social life or school or work or whatever, there's a kind of editing that goes on. And then in meditation, maybe one of the freedoms that comes in meditation is it's like this total um, willingness to experience our mind, experience our heart, uh, 
um, without editing, without pushing something away. Um, and it's somehow finding the middle ground between editing and indulging. You know, so... Um, so what would, that, what would that feel like? What would that be like to be open? It's a kind of radical openness, but without grasping, without clinging. What, you know, sometimes we grasp the good states, to what we think are good. So something that's calm, something that feels, you know, however we want to feel. And maybe that emotional state arises and then we kind of, okay, grab onto it. I want it to always be like this. Or what did I do to make that happen? And, you know, we, we worry it's going to go away or something. Um, we might grasp onto something that feels like a bad state or a negative state. So, oh, I had this idea, this thought, this feeling. That means this. That means this about me. That means da-da-da-da-da. Oh, it's always going to be that way. Or... Um, we grasp onto it that way. And so this is like a vision of practice where all the, all the doors are open, all the windows are open, all the lights are on in the house. You know, so it's like the self as a house. And everything is open and allowed to come and go, allowed to pass through. Um, and sometimes this is called, one of my teachers calls this a bottom-up approach. In Maybe in contrast a little bit to top-down. Top-down meaning um, to take a kind of very uh, fixed view of what meditation practice is. So I'm going to focus on this word like a mantra, or I'm going to focus on the breath in a very particular way. You focus on the breath here or focus on the breath and almost like a dog with its bone, you know, I'm not going to let go of it and just stay with that. Um, So that would be more of a top-down approach. And then the bottom-up approach is this openness and this willingness to experience it all, let it come and go. And um, maybe at some point these approaches to meditation come together. You know, so there's not much of a difference between that very directed approach and that very open approach, that there's some kind of integration there. And I think there's value to both. You know, um, if we're very sleepy, if we're very, our energy is very foggy, very diffuse, it's great to bring a little more focus, a little more energy straighter, bring in the breath, have this intention of being with the breath, letting the breath stabilize our mindfulness, let it calm the system. Um, and um, so maybe in different, different times of our meditation practice, one or the other will be um, more or less helpful. But I think ultimately practice is coming down to this idea of being willing to be with ourselves as we are and to be with life as it is. There's one great quote, and I don't know who said it, but I think it's like an English 
person, person from England, philosopher or something, but it was something like life as it is, myself as I am. You know, as, as a statement of what is, um, what, are, what are we working towards? You know, rather than this idea of changing, improving, fixing, it's like life as it is. What would it be like to take life whole in all of the, um, you know, in all of the good parts and all of the parts we don't like, all of the ups and downs, that any, any spiritual practice needs to come to terms with life as it is. And, and this process of coming to terms with ourselves as we are. Um, so there's this, uh, this classical story of, um, and I think it comes from China, that is uh, often used in um, Dharma teachings to illustrate some, something about this I- journey into wholeness. And so there was, uh, it's in a small village in China, there was a young woman who, um, who fell in love. And she fell in love with a uh, young man in the village and wanted to, they wanted to get married. However, being, you know, traditional society and um, in, this, in this culture, the parents, especially the father, um, has a, a big say, maybe it's the ultimate say, in who their children marry. And the family, the father had already decided that the girl would marry someone else. And um, so he, he basically explained this to his daughter and forbid the couple from seeing each other again, from ever seeing each other again. The young man who was the, the, the one she loved was so distraught by this that he decided that he couldn't bear to see his uh, beloved with another man. So he said, I'm just going to go away. I'm going to leave the village and I'm going to go make my life somewhere else. So he got in his boat and he started, you know, got his things together and he started rowing away and leaving. And then you know, at night, so no one, no one could see him. No one could know what was happening. But as he was rowing away from the village, he saw a figure running on the riverbank, and it was this young woman. Her name was Sejo, right? So it was, it was Sejo. It was this young woman, and he saw her running, and so he paddled over to her, and it was her, and she said. I, I can't live like this. I want to run away with you. And I'm willing to give up my family. I'm willing to give up my kind of place in, the, in society because I want to be with you. And then he said, no, you should stay with your family. And, you know, they have money. They have this. And he said, she said, no, he couldn't convince her. So he decided to uh, take her with him. And they, 
they they left. They ran away, basically. You know, not that of an unusual uh, story. And they ran away and they made their life in another, you know, far away village and uh, found their way and eventually had a child. And then in having the child and, and becoming parents themselves, they felt uh, overcome with guilt, you know, or, or fi- putting themselves in the position of the parents and feeling like, you know what, we should really go back and make things right and, and reconnect with, you know, especially her parents. And so they kind of talk about it and they decide, yeah, this is what we, we want to do. So many years after they originally left, they returned to the village. And the husband, because they had since gotten married, the husband says to Seijo, you wait here in the boat and I'm going to go up to your family house and talk to your father. And because this is the right thing to do and I'm the, you know, the man, I'm the one who originally went away, and I'm going to go talk to him and ap- apologize and ask for forgiveness and see if we can uh, visit. So he goes goes up to the family house and he knocks on the door. And um, the father looks very surprised to see him, very happy, very surprised, and said, oh, it's you. And um, I'm so you know, it's been so many years and kind of happy to see you. And the the husband says, you know, I just really want to apologize for what I did and leaving and um, that I brought, I, that I took your daughter and um, she's here and we want, we want to, we want to reconnect with you and, and, and have a relationship. And then the father looks very puzzled. He says, what, what? What are you? What are you talking about? And uh, and, she, and he said, Yeah, yeah, no, I, you know, your daughter's with me, and she's fine, and we want to. And he said, I don't know who you're with and who you're talking about, but ever since that night that you left the village, my daughter fell ill, and she became very sick and bedridden, and she's been in bed in her room in bed all these years. And the, and the husband said, I, that doesn't matter. What are you talking about? She's, she's in the boat with me. We have a child and she, I'll show you right now. And so he calls her to come over. And then, and the, and the father says, I don't know, I don't know who you're with, but my daughter's right here and I, I can show you. And she hasn't left her bed all these years. So as the Seijo, the daughter comes in, walks in from the boat. The daughter who, the, the, the young woman, the daughter who's in bed, um, gets out of bed for the first time in all these years. And the, the Seijo from the boat and the Seijo who has been sick um, come together and they meet and then they become one person again. And so that's the that's the story. That's the, that's the story. And then the the question, 
um, this kind of Zen koan or the Zen question is Seijo and her soul were separated. Which one is the real Seijo? Seijo and her soul were separated. Which one is the real Seijo? Um, and so I always think of the story in this, in this idea of bringing, bringing the parts of ourselves that may have become separated or alienated or isolated uh, the parts of ourselves that are unloved, maybe, the parts of ourselves that we don't want to show other people, the parts of ourselves that are, um, yeah, unloved or disowned or uh, heartbroken. or And this idea of coming together and coming together as a whole person and something about that this is the way to peace. This is the way to wholeness. And maybe there's something about this story that's a little bit, um, I think it's a beautiful story. Um, And the fact that, you know, um, sometimes when something happens, we can feel like we are um, fragmented. And so one way we deal with that fragmentation is, um, I think in, in psychological terms, it's called dissociation. So we kind of wall off that part. So you could say Seijo was kind of dissociated. There was a part of herself that was totally sick. And that was a total experience, which just being bedridden and sick. And then the part of herself that was living this other life that was completely separated from her family. And, and so they came back together as one. And um, that's where the story ends. But maybe for us, in our practice, when, when, we bring, when we bring mindfulness to all of the different parts of ourselves and all of the different states, it's not necessarily experienced at first as the kind of bliss of unity and the bliss of wholeness. Maybe, maybe it is. Maybe at times there's this bliss of being whole. Sometimes the state of, of concentration, of samadhi, is talked about as that unification of mind and that experience of being whole. But maybe more commonly or more realistically, the experience of wholeness is actually experienced as conflict as being conflicted. And so something about this willingness to be with the conflict. You know, so for Seijo, maybe for her, the experience of wholeness is about coming to bring mindfulness, bringing, bring patience and love and compassion to the conflict itself, to the conflict, you know, of the difficulty of being with um, trying to make both of these sides happy. You know, the side that loves her family and the side that loves her partner. You know, and rather than 
saying one is real or the other is real, it's like this willingness to be with that difficulty and to be with the sense of being divided is itself what heals, is itself, um, you know, what allows a full human life. Um, So... So I think in our practice um, that we can become especially sensitive to the places of conflict within us and the places of division, of separation, the places of conflict are very, very valuable places to bring mindfulness to bear. And, you know, there may be uh, thoughts and a story around it, but um, more often than not, there will be a physical manifestation of that sense of conflict. So then we, we, we just drop in to whatever physical sensations are present with, with mindfulness, with, with care, um, just that willingness to feel those sensations in the body that are connected to whatever divisions, whatever conflict, whatever, um, you know, sometimes it comes up as this feeling of being damaged in some way. And, you know, so I think of wholeness as being, as being the antidote for that, that somehow wholeness is saying that how we are, as we are, is just fine, is just okay, is just right. And so um, it's really the antidote to that feeling of not enough, that feeling of being uh, damaged or um, incomplete, something is incomplete. Um, and and then in in this somewhere is... Um, relaxing the mind that compares. Relaxing the mind that's always looking, that's always, well, it could, could be like this or other people have this and, you know, and so we, that's called um, comparing mind, ma- manas. You know, this idea of... Um, filtering our experience through some story. And with such, it's okay, we all do that. We all, you know, sometimes it's very useful to compare. But is there a time for, is there a place for relaxing the comparing mind? And when, when that can be relaxed and to be willing to experience ourselves as we are, to be willing to experience our life as it is, um, that can bring a tremendous relief and a tremendous sense of wholeness that's far beyond our ideas of, of good and bad, right or wrong. 
It's something more intimate. It's something more real. Um, so maybe that's. And I have a lot more stories about Mr. Rogers that I could share. If, yeah. <laughs> one one of the things, just to just one little story, is that he, you know, he started his television show in the 1960s, and. Um, he, those of you who are familiar with it know that there was kind of a cast of characters who, you know, the, the mailman and the, um, the baker and the police officer and kind of who kind of went through the 30-year series with him. And so in the late 60s, he invited uh, an African-American man to join the cast. And what he said to him is that I would like you to be the police officer. Already, this is kind of a radical thing, you know, to have a black police officer, you know, in this, on the show. And I don't think in television in that time and, you know, in the society in that time, that was an unusual thing. But, and this, and this was recounted by Francois Clemens, who was the, the actor who, who played, I think it was Officer Clemens. So not only was he the police officer, but in the early in the show, there was an episode where it was a hot day and Mr. Rogers had his feet in the, um, a little kind of kiddie pool and was cooling his feet. And then he invited Officer Clemens to come in and cool his feet. And so this was, um, you know, in the days of segregation, right? So to have office of Officer Clemens and Mr. Rogers together in the same swimming pool was... So, okay, first he's a police officer. And then the police officer gets in the pool with Mr. Rogers. And then what Francois Clemens said, what really stunned him is when he got out of the pool, Mr. Rogers leaped up and got on his knees and dried off his feet. You know, I always feel very moved by, you know, and, and Officer Clemens, Ms. Francois Clemens, you know, that wasn't in the script or that wasn't anything. And that was, but he said, that was Fred. You know, that was Fred. And so in his way, he was doing his ministry. In his way, he was presenting the images and the uh, messages that he wanted children to receive, that he wanted, that he wanted to share. And so, anyway, it's just, it's one of these, you know, that there are people and there are um, the power of one person, the one person who understands wholeness, who understands presence, and, um, and, and the power of sharing that. Um, so, anyway, that's, that's, uh, was one story that I remember that was, that was that felt meaningful and felt relevant. So, um, curious of your thoughts about this. We have we have some time. And, um, questions, comments. Uh, Dharma practice as a path to being whole being complete in some way. Um, 
And the key idea here being it's a completeness that is who and what we already are. It's not a completeness that only if we do X, Y, and Z, then, you know, then it's okay. It's really um, the, the, the intrinsic wholeness, intrinsic completeness that is our nature. Um, so, how does that land? How does that land with you? How does this, even the the word wholeness? No. Is it a word that points to possibility and potential? Does it, does it, is it confusing? Is it? Maybe it's a jar. I found the um, your your uh, presentation really inspiring in the sense of um, getting in touch with something that I tend to gloss over in daily life, you know, taking care of things and and keeping things in order and not dropping into the moment where you make that connection. And uh, it kind of reminds me of uh, forgetfulness, forgetting the um, purpose, forgetting the point of connectedness and wholeness in the daily occurrences and taking care of things. So I just want to thank you for reminding me to drop back into the moment and and make those connections. Mm, thank you. Thank you very much, Randy. I think when you have that sense of wholeness, it's easier to show compassion towards a much wider range of people, even people that you'd normally don't like because I think one of our lack of wholeness is something that aggravates our dislikes of certain groups of people even if we have legitimate reasons to not like them I mean but it's easier to transcend that um, when you have the sense of wholeness um, and the story of Mr. Rogers and the placement I mean it's obviously has overtones of the last supper where Jesus washes the disciples feet and the <laughs> disciples just wash each other's feet. So it seems to me this is one place where Mr. Rogers, uh, Protestant Christian background <laughs> played, played into what he was doing. So, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think it's a great point that when we, when we feel our, when I see myself as incomplete, or not enough, or somehow damaged. Sometimes the pain of that is so intolerable that I project it off onto others, you know. And so I think that's, you know, someone once remarked that um, hatred, you know, especially kind of hatred towards others, is often 
the, I mean, the, the root of it is self-hatred. You know, so when we really love ourselves, when we really accept ourselves, um, we're much less likely to demonize others and kind of um, act out against others. Um, and yeah, maybe, you know, maybe, maybe there's in that washing the feet of, of, of the officer, that there's, for me, it, without even knowing the religious, you know, the, 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 the sort of the connection and the backstory of, of the biblical um, overtones, that, you know, it's this kind of um, act of love and of respect and of, um, you know, really ennobling and dignifying um, this person, you know, in a way that I think would probably have been at that time probably a stunning, I mean, that's a radical act. Um, so, so yeah. yeah. Thank you. Yeah, so uh, <clears throat> I appreciated the talk, Max, and uh, just interesting that you brought up this uh, idea of imagery because um, I've been thinking a lot about that just like in terms of the precept of um, intoxicants and consumption and just how many images I've gotten of certain things and um, the way I've learned sort of unconscious thought patterns and patterns around the way things are represented so I think that was really really interesting that you brought that in and just the representationality of it the way that there's a lot of delusion if if things have been represented and a reality has been constructed over and over again and there's a a lot of momentum around that um, and it's a norm, sort of normalized way of seeing things, and and just the 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 willingness to sort of it was sort of radical in 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 its divergence from the norm, and the ability that he he had to do that because that's what he believed in. It was some something something higher than than maybe what what was. The, the fear of um, divergence from the norm and um, to be able to sort of like go on a, a different path from, from the legacy and the momentum of segregation. And, and that's wholeness, is that ability to say, okay, there's been parts of myself, there's so much stigma around so many things and just the ability, the radical ability to just shift into compassion um, with things that are, are very often judged, but a belief in the redeemability, ultimately, of whatever we have, because mm. it's all part of the human experience. Yeah, thank you. Very nice, thank you. 
And one of the places I went with this Chinese story was, yeah, but in real life, we can't live both those lives. Mm, mm. <laughs> Doesn't work that way. And um, I have one of those dilemmas in, in my life. It feels like this one thing is complete wholeness. And this other thing is complete wholeness. And they can't both happen. Mm-hmm. At this, they can't both happen. Not even at the same time, but probably not ever both to happen. And, um, and I've made my choice, but... Um, so one question was what, what, what to do with that. And partly I just am with the sadness of, of the thing that can't happen. And, um, but then as you were talking and I was sitting there, I, I wondered, I guess this is what you were saying, is that really the wholeness that I bring to life is just being with that and is separate from that, whether I have this or that. There's this, um, I think of it as a, an American thing in particular, but maybe not, of like, we have a, a true self that we're supposed to realize. <laughs> <laughs> our, our full potential, the, the, this thing, you know? And if we don't do that, we're, we're, our, our soul is going to, you know, decay or some horrible thing will happen. And that's not true. Right, right. But it's a really hard, and it's not an either or. Of course, we have to fulfill certain aspects of ourselves. Um, but the conflict cannot be resolved sometimes. Mm. Mm. Yes, that's right. I think that's sometimes the conflict cannot be resolved. And what do we do? And what do That's <laughs> my question. What do we do when the conflict happens? So I think, you know, as you said, um, in this understanding of wholeness, it's not, um, it's not a particular... I mean, it, you know, we might have the idea, well, wholeness is really when I, whatever, get everything I want. <laughs> you know, <laughs> fulfill my this and do this and have everything and... Um, and that's wholeness. <laughs> you know, and, and the idea is that um, the experience of wholeness doesn't depend on the particular content of our life or the content of experience. It's really the, way, the relationship to it. You know, so, um, I mean, I think th- this can come up when we, when, in whatever way, how we are or our life is, isn't what we pictured. You know, so I have a picture in my mind of a healthy body looking this way or a healthy child being this way or this way. Is the child who's sick or the child who's um, somehow has some difference um, not whole? You know, they are whole. Um, They're whole exactly as they are. They're they're not whole if we compare to some idea we have. And we're always going between this mode of comparing 
and filtering and then dropping in to the true wholeness of it and the true experience of it. And so um, when we can see all of our conflicts and all of our difficulties as included in the wholeness, I think that's the, that's the shift. Um, and, and then we can really delight in how things are, even if they're, even if they're difficult or even if they're, you know, not, um, you know, I, I, I just think about the, the, the wonderful children who are born with, you know, various disabilities and differences and, and to really get to know them, you know, is, is for, for many people, this life-changing experience because it's like, it involves letting go of preconceived ideas and really entering into the wholeness of another being as they are. Um, and, and all of the beauty that, that only comes when we're willing to do that, we're able to do that. So, um, but it's, it requires, I think, being willing to um, tolerate discomfort, tolerate unpleasantness, tolerate the place of division in us. It may be a division between how things are. I mean, the fundamental division is how things are and how I want them to be, <laughs> you know, how I think they should be, how that person is and how I think they should act towards me. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know that's, that's the, that's we're always, we're always in and out of that. And um, to be able to hang out for longer and longer periods with simply how things are. Which and and it may be uncomfortable, and it may be it may bring up, um, you know, those inner conflicts. But in this way of seeing things, to be mindful of inner conflict is a wonderful thing. Because when we're not mindful of it, it doesn't mean it's not there, <laughs> but it means that we're partitioning. We're over here for some time, we're, we're with the beloved, and then we're, we're with the family, and we're in bed, and then we're, and we're split off. So to actually be able to experience the division is approaching wholeness, you know? And maybe the request of wholeness is to be with all of those divisions and bring, you know, our our mindfulness, our love to them. And sometimes they can't be resolved, maybe. You know, it's like, there's no way that um, we can be in two places at once. Um, Thank you. Okay, so thank you very much. Very nice to be with you. Thank you.